2: Even though I've made bad decisions, I've never not grown from them, even if they didn't work out the way I ultimately hoped that they would.
3: Thanks for joining us on the podcast where we talk about all things change, big changes, little changes. Complete life changes. I am Lisa Oz, and I am Jill herzig. Um,
4: we live in an age we were just discussing this where entrepreneurialism is so celebrated in our culture, as it should be. And as I sort of went through my big job shift, I kept thinking to myself, well maybe maybe I should start something. That seems to be the thing to do that' this is just it's all about entrepreneurs and i I had this you know, moment where I looked deep in my soul and I thought, Jill, you're just not an entrepreneur. Do you feel like you're an entrepreneurial person, Lisa?
3: Me? Yes. Oh gosh. Um I haven't launched anything yet, let's put it <laughs> that way. But that doesn't mean I don't think I have it in me. I have like this fantasy of an inner entrepreneur. I
4: don't know. I see you I, <laughs> I see your hand in many things that have launched, but maybe we won't go into that. Well, into that history. Our guest
3: today is a master entrepreneur. She is the founder of Aiden and Anna, which is um for all of you who have had children who are under eighteen or probably sixteen, the go-to baby swaddling blanket. Um she's also the author of um What It Takes How I built a hundred million dollar business against the odds. Reagan Moya Jones, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. All right, so Aiden and A is iconic, and I only know about it because I'm a grandmother and I have little grandkids from five down to one. And they don't come anywhere without stacks of these swaddling blankets. Right. Tell us about Aiden and A, how it started, what caught you into this business what was the birth of this baby
2: well the birth was really the actual birth of (laughs) an who is my eldest of four daughters so she was really the impetus for starting aiden and a because i went looking for a blanket that was very common back home in australia these muslin blankets we called them wraps back there and to my surprise they didn't exist here in the u.s And I just thought, how the hell do American parents have babies without this stuff? Because I know you've seen them with your grandchildren use them for so many things to wrap the baby, as stroller shades, as burp cloths, as tummy time blankets, as nursing covers, just multiple uses. So I really just didn't understand how American parents got by without them. And I thought. I, I can attest, having had a baby who did not sleep well.
4: I was relying on to swaddle, which is basically just to tightly wrap them so they right. don't wake themselves up by startling all mm-hmm. the time, which they do. They do. Um, I just hoarded all the hospital blankets, right. which were made out of flannel and didn't mm-hmm. work anywhere near as well. I didn't
2: know the product I was dreaming of. But it was your blanket. Right. It time. existed. Yeah. And and again, I didn't invent it. it mm. li- I remember it being around in Australia since I was born in the 60s. You know, I, it, it's a very, very common product over there, very utilitarian, sold in – pharmacies and supermarkets and pack-a-fort. No one else in the world had it. Well, they the Bible. I mean, exactly. Jesus was
1: wrapped in swaddling <laughs> clothes cloth. and yes. laid in a manger,
3: so they've been around for a
1: long, a long time. Long,
2: long time, <laughs> yes. Uh, for, my understanding is that muslin originated in Bangladesh, you know, eons ago. So the fabric
3: itself has been around for a very long time as well. So you said, oh, my gosh, how am I going to have a baby without Without a muslin blanket. Correct. Most people would have called their mother back in in <laughs> Australia and said, Mom, can you send me a box of these swaddling? <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep them coming. I yeah, want to give muslins. some to my friend. Right. Yeah. They wouldn't have started a whole business around it. How did that happen? Well, I did do that,
2: but it was actually my <laughs> sister that I called because she had a baby six months before I had an A, so she was sort of my go to for all things that I needed to know and understand. But I just thought because The reason that I was able to do this was simply because I was an Aussie transplanted into the US. That's just, Aidan and Anae wouldn't exist if I had never moved out of my home country into the States and then had my baby here. So I did call Paige and I did say to her, can you please send me some Muslim blankets, which she did, and then I just thought... I need to. Th- there was an opportunity. I saw an opportunity in America because I knew that once American parents understood what this was and what it did, they wouldn't be able to to have babies without it as well. So, but it you was, were,
4: you already had a career. You were, mm-hmm. you know, it sounded like you were kind of knee deep in a job as mm-hmm. well. So there had to be something that made you think, I, "I'm going to." I'm going to make this leap. I'm going to leave this career and I'm going to do this baby blanket thing.
2: Right. So I think having lived what I've lived over the last 12 years, having had the idea for Aiden and then getting it to where we are today, I think I was always a little bit bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. I wasn't aware that's what it was back then, but I do distinctly recall having ideas for businesses throughout my life and ranging from importing jewellery from Bali and opening coffee shops and opening... I just always had a desire, I think, to work for me rather than somebody else. So I'd had multiple ideas over the years, uh, but none of them really, when I thought long and hard about it, were viable. So Aidan and Anae and the the hole that I saw in the market for these muslin blankets was the first upon further inspection seemed like a viable business idea that I could could start and grow and
3: scale into something meaningful. It seems from the outside, to, for those of us who aren't entrepreneurs or launching our own ventures, that there's, you have to be a sort of risk averse when you do this sort of thing. How How big a role does being open to risk play? And would you, For people who are are a little afraid of risk, would you say don't bother?
2: Actually, that is one of the biggest fallacies around entrepreneurs. We are not risk takers. We are very cautious people. There's lots of research around that. uh, And I talk about that actually quite a bit in the book. And I definitely took risks, you have to, to be successful, but I never took them without a whole lot of thought going into what I was ultimately going to do. So I I like to refer to myself as a cautious risk taker, if that makes sense. So a perfect example is I didn't leave my day job until I had got Aiden and A to a million dollars in revenue. So Mm. I stayed working full-time at The Economist Group from the idea in 2003 it took till 2006 to actually work out how to make the product and get it to market and then i stayed working at my day job till may of 2009 where i think you say your boss once told you you didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in your body that is a direct (laughs) quote and and at the time someone needs to get that tattooed (laughs) on himself and at that time i had already hit a million dollars in revenue so the (laughs) the joke was on him really yeah. but um but that's a perfect example of actually not taking the risk i wasn't prepared to put unnecessary financial pressure on my family my salary still mattered you know i wasn't married to a hedge fund husband who had more money than and i didn't need to work i needed to work so i decided to play it safe and When you actually look at Warby Parker did the same thing. They didn't just quit their day jobs. They straddled both. And I talk about that in the book too. One of their Harvard professors who they asked to actually invest in the business early on didn't think they were going to be successful because they weren't all in
3: out of the gate that was adam grant right yes yeah he's he we he was one of our first interviews yeah he He talked about
2: that that, actually he He did the biggest mistakes he's ever made (laughs) yeah so i think he tries
4: hard not to think about it (laughs) it. (laughs) as as i would as well But, (laughs) but okay so if you don't really need to
2: be a risk taker if that's a fallacy what do you need well it's not that you don't need to be a risk taker that you do have to take risks to be successful i think in business in your career everything you know if you play it safe always in life how far do you really get so but but this notion that we are crazy risk takers as entrepreneurs is just not true mm-hmm. what i believe is the most important thing and one of the main reasons i wrote the book because when i was originally approached to write the book I said no, because I don't have a business degree i'm I'm not particularly smart I'm definitely not educated I did I get thought, you with that last one, but, go well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, well, I'm street smart I'm not book smart, you know I don't have a degree or anything like that, and I thought, well, what business do I have telling people how to run a business, and then my now agent was the one who said to me, Well, you've kind of done it, so you and and then I started to think about it and I thought, well, there is the the crux of the book. If I can do it, anyone can do it. And I started to think about what it was that made me successful. And I really think the the main thing that led to the success of Aiden and A was a combination of incredibly hard work. I worked harder than I ever thought I was capable of working. A true passion for what I was doing, so I really believed in it. And a whole lot of humility to be acutely aware of what I didn't know. And I was very happy to surround myself with much smarter people that knew a whole lot more than me and be comfortable with that. And I think that was ultimately the combination of those things is what led to the huge success of Aiden and Danae.
3: When we come back, we're going to talk about the resilience that is necessary with success.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future.
3: We've been chatting with Reagan Moya Jones, the author of "What It Takes: How I Built a Hundred Million Dollar Business Against the Odds." You told us about how you built Aiden and A, and then it sounds like when you say, "Oh, I you know built a hundred million dollar company," it sounds like it's all roses and buttercups and everything's wonderful. And yes, a hundred million dollars, but there were a lot of bumps in the road, and this and um, you had two. Well, there were several but i just want to start with two i think traumatic events one was you had a cancer scare and the other was your partner turned on you mm-hmm. so can you just tell us about those incidents a little bit
2: sure so uh, and and i'm i'm loath to call it a cancer scare because i have friends who have gone through the real deal cancer with chemo and all the rest of it basically what happened is my dermatologist who I've been seeing for many many years found something that didn't look good on my chest and said I needed to have it biopsied which I did and it turned out to be a malignant melanoma and it was it was the size of a pinhead and I ended up having to have surgery where they cut to the bone and, you know, because melanoma has the tentacles and I ended up with 38 stitches and so it was, I wasn't ready for it. And during that time, about two weeks before that I was diagnosed with that and went through that. And it was a very short period of time. It was from diagnosis to the surgery to being told I was okay was about five days. So it was very fast. But potentially life-altering or perspective-altering. And it was ultimately life-altering anyway because I went, well, I need to calm down here because I'm a big believer in stress, manifests physical things in your Mm. body and all of that. So it did sort of slapped me upside the head a little bit where I went, you know, calm down, Reagan. These are baby blankets. Like, let's get this (laughs) in perspective. So, it was actually a good thing, you know, that it it ultimately happened. But during the same time, about two weeks prior, my very good friend, and that's the hardest part, and my business partner who co-founded the company with me had sent me an email saying that she didn't believe in the business anymore. She wanted out a terms sort of listed out of what she how much money she wanted, the time frame she wanted, it sort of it was horrible. Mm. And she wouldn't talk to me. She never we never spoke another word to each other after she sent that email despite me trying. It was so
4: essentially you went through a
2: terrible divorce. Horrible. Yeah. You know? And um and as I said, it was heartbreaking because first and foremost, she was my friend. So and a very good friend. And so it was. It was a pretty tumultuous time, and I didn't have enough money to buy Claudia out. So then I had to scramble and try and find other people that would roll the dice on me and what I was doing with Aidan and Anae. Who did you find? Three friends. Yeah. Which I was. I was. I I realized not everybody has the luxury of living in New York and having a lot of friends who are bankers and things <laughs> like that. So they were three women that. One I'd worked with at The Economist, another one I'd met through an Australian connection, and then it was really a friend of one of the other friends of mine that were an investor. So those three women came in and effectively bought forty nine percent of uh, to to buy Claudia out. Um, but it was yeah, it was horrible. And so that's a
4: that's a really dark time, obviously, that you went through, and it so I mean, bad. You you mentioned the word heartbreak. And I have to say, in reading your book, that was one of the big takeaways for me was that you've got to be ready almost in the same way you have to when you invest in a relationship. You don't know what's going to happen. Right. You know heartbreak is a possibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, it almost a made probability, it, actually. it it is. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I didn't don't want to say certainty. Yes. But you're going to get your heart knocked around for mm-hmm. sure. So wh- Lisa mentioned resilience. How do you How do you find that resilience in yourself to get back up from a a time like that?
2: It's not easy. And I definitely got very shaky through that where I started to really question whether or not I should keep going with this, whether I had what it took to keep going with this. Um, But ultimately, I just dug very deep. For me, it was as much about the fact that I'd come so far and been through so much and the thought of giving up at that point would have negated everything that I'd already been through, which sort of didn't sit well with me. But at the end of the day, it was probably my husband who gave me the final push. And uh, I remember one day saying to him, I don't know if I can do this. I think I've bitten off more than I can chew with everything that's coming at me. Maybe this is the universe just telling me to give it a miss. And He said to me, do you believe in the business? And I said, well, yes, I always have. And he said, then fight for it, because if you don't and you walk away from this, I think the pain of that would be worse than trying to pick yourself back up and keep going, even if you do fail, having done that.
3: You mentioned your husband, and in your book, you also talk about the strain that building this business put on your marriage and how you were able to work through that as mm-hmm. a couple. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, definitely it was the strain of the business, but had I been in a corporate career and the pressure of that, so I don't want to in any way imply that it was the the stress of the business alone that, that put the pressure on. We also had four kids and two dogs, and live in New York City. <laughs> so there was a whole lot going on, you know. And and we we didn't talk a lot once I sort of got into Aiden and Anae about the business. I've I, and turns out that upset Marcos because he wanted to to talk about it and support me when I was going through the bad stuff. Whereas I didn't want to bring it home. I wanted to leave the work stuff at work and when I was home, I wanted to put the Reagan mum hat on and be there for my family. I didn't want to be talking about the crappy thing that had happened in the the business that day or whatever. So he was, um, he was a huge catalyst in sort of getting me through the hard times because he saw it. He saw the warts and all. You know, if you've got a partner, you know that they tend to see the really bad stuff, right? That you <laughs> reserve often for them. So uh, it, it wasn't easy. We decided. He more so decided that it wouldn't be good if we worked together. He actually said to me when I once suggested perhaps he should leave his job and come and work at A because timing didn't work out for a holiday he looked at me, and said, are you a mental person? He said, you're already the CEO of the house. I'm not going to let you be the CEO of my career as well. So uh, he he had the common sense to, you know, deflect that when I was having a moment. But it, it wasn't, it's still not easy. Um, you know, I don't, I don't run Aiden and A anymore, but you, you, your partnership, lots of kids, lots of pressure. It's a, You've I remember once being told that, you know, if you stop working at a job or a career, you'll ultimately get fired, right? If you stop working at a marriage, it's going to end badly. You know, it's just, it's constant work. So we we do the best we can, despite it sometimes not looking very pretty.
4: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that because that's true. And I love when people bring the tea. (laughs) Um, So, so you talked about the fact that you no longer work at Aiden and NA.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: is also a tough story. Horrible. Um <laughs> and you don't you don't spare. No. Because you, you I don't think spare the details because I guess you feel people need
2: to know. Can I you just do. talk about that a little bit? I, I think that I think in society today, in the crazy world of social media and everyone trying to put perfection out there, which we all know is not true, which is even more infuriating in a different podcast, but when you have four daughters and you're trying to explain to them, it's not real. Mm. Very tough. But um, I was I sold my business to a private equity firm in 2013 and then bought back in in a meaningful way to my own business. At the time, I was told that I was going to continue to run it as the CEO. It was going to be continue to be my vision. They were there as you know financial support to scale the business and offer support in the areas that as you're scaling at the rate that Aiden and A was, you often need help and guidance. Well, very long story short, we did not see eye to eye, and that became pretty clear very early on. And ultimately, uh, they in 2016 when we purchased another company, they. They called me, I didn't, they didn't even give me the courtesy of meeting me in person to tell me that they were moving me out as the CEO, because they needed a superstar CEO to run <laughs> the company, and I didn't fit that bill, <sighs> and uh, so that was, I that hurt, and then in two thousand last year, March 2018, they ultimately fired me from the company completely, because... I was, I'm not really a shrinking violet, so I was kind of pretty honest about the fact that I didn't agree with the direction they were taking it.
4: Well, I love that you had that fight in you.
3: <laughs> well, when we come back, we will learn what happens when being fired drives you to drink. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
3: We've been chatting with Reagan Moya Jones, the founder of Aiden and A, and the author of the new book, What It Takes How I Built a $100 Million Business Against the Odds. That number is still staggering. Um, So, and we were talking about how, Reagan, you were fired from your own company, which is like being kicked out of the house by your baby. (laughs) And I can see many people would probably have just packed up their bags, been happy with the fact that they had done very, very well and been successful and called it a day. Mm -hmm. You gave birth again, Mm -hmm. but this time to something a little more grown up and adult. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about your new project?
2: Sure. Well, having spent most of last year in a very big hole, I just want your listeners to know that I didn't just bounce right back. There was definitely a grieving period and getting used to not living and breathing this business that I had done so for almost 12 years. And a friend of mine and a colleague at Aiden and A who also got he actually resigned, but knowing full well the writing was on the wall for him as well, he it was his idea to start a moonshine company. To which I originally <laughs> said, "Are you a mental person? Yeah. <laughs> you know. uh, moonshine? I'm not getting it." But can you play the banjo? The, no, I didn't understand it. I didn't. And then on further discussion with David, he pointed out that. You should do what you know and do what you love. And we both know and love booze. My, although my, my drink of choice is usually wine and champagne, but that's a whole other story. All
4: three of us are soul sisters on this, <laughs> by the go. way, sitting at there this
2: table. And, uh, but it, uh, and even back then when he came to me with this idea, he said, I've got our next business idea. Let's do moonshine. And I said, why? And he said, well, It's a relatively unsaturated category within a very big liquor industry, obviously. And no one's really done anything much with that category. And so then I started to think about it and I did find similarities, everyone laughs hard when I tell them this, between muslin blankets and moonshine (laughs) when I started to really think about it. Do (laughs) tell. Well, it was really about the fact that muslin existed It just didn't exist the way I had it perceived in my head. So, for instance, the muslin in Australia was primarily white, sold, as I said, very basic. It was like a nappy, a a diaper. Mm. And I just thought, well, it can be beautiful as well as practical. So then I started to think about the same with moonshine. It's primarily a, a liquor that is just super high alcohol content that serves the purpose of getting people smashed. Yeah. And I thought, well, what if we turned that on its head and created a a high-end moonshine that is designed to really taste good that's served in five-star bars and restaurants and you know, is known for the actual taste and flavor of the the alcohol as much as the fact that it's it's a high alcohol content. And as I said to David, Yes, we could do something with that. I said, but the problem there is you and I haven't got a freaking clue how to make high end moonshine. We don't even know how to make bad moonshine. Litter. And that's when the, the I thought you were going to say that every new mother
4: should have a still set up in the basement. Well, and there is. You that had true. one,
2: and I do say that for mothers of multiple children, the transition from baby blankets to booze is not a big jump, no. really. You, you get it, and. Uh, and that's when, for all intents and purposes, our distiller, who was out of Memphis, literally fell out of the sky. He just sort of appeared out of nowhere in one of those life moments where it was such a slap upside the head with the universe telling me this moonshine thing is 100% where you need to go next.
3: You yeah. had that with the Chinese baby blanket manufacturer I too. You've had uh, the, these like... Are people just popping into your eyes? And
2: and I do, I'm a big believer in manifestation. I believe the energy you give out, you get back, both good and bad. And I've experienced both ends of it over the last few years. And this guy had been tinkering with a recipe, a moonshine recipe, for over a decade. He's a chemist, a chemical engineer, as well as someone who'd grown up In the South, and was playing around with stills and everything. And he really did have an incredible moonshine recipe. And we've already won a gold and a silver medal for the liquor in World Spirit competitions. It's not very old. We've only been on the market since May one. <laughs> but we're but we're already in Jean Georges restaurants. Wow. So we've already accomplished the five we're yeah. we're on Winding the winning over Jean Georges to Moonshine. Exactly. That's, you know, it's a it's, a, it's that's great quite an when achievement. I walk into to, you know, Jean George and I see it on the shelf there, I'm like, Wow, we actually did this. Jeez. Employees only have, have put it on their first moonshine ever to go into employees only. Fantastic. Yeah. Will
3: you do the sales yourself? Do you walk yes. into a bar and say, I am, "Guys, I've got this beautiful bottle of Saint Luna right here." I am so, and that back is the name the for everybody, by the
2: way. It is Saint, Saint Luna. Luna Spirits. Yes, and yes, I at least I am so back in the trenches with my little backpack and moonshine, walking the streets of New York City, trying to convince people to buy it, lugging boxes out of trade shows. So, yes, I've. Uh, gone from the CEO of a $100 million business to the girl pounding the pavement again to try and spread the word on moonshine. But
4: that's so lovely. I mean, it, it seems as though ego has never played a huge role in your career. Oh, no. That. I'm Australian.
2: I'm <laughs> not allowed to have an ego <laughs> as an Aussie. Doesn't, doesn't work. They dis, they disown you. Ego just gets in the way it sometimes. It does. It really does. Yeah. And look, and I love the building part. That, that was always... The fun part, the innovation, the
3: building, the creating. So I'm enjoying it. What advice would you give your daughters when they are facing challenges and obstacles and going after their dreams? What What kind of advice would you give them?
2: And I already give it to them because <laughs> you've got to start early now, right? Um, my, my youngest is nine. My oldest is about to be 16. And I just tell them that, and I really believe this, Anything you want badly enough, if you believe in yourself and believe in what you want and you're prepared to work really hard to get it, you can have it. That's that's what it's about. It's about self-belief and the willing to work hard to accomplish whatever it is you want to accomplish.
4: And are you seeing that shape them already? Are you seeing that in them, that willingness to work and that belief in their...
2: No, and what they want. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've teenagers. I'm like, I'm hard pressed to get them off their phones yeah. and out of their bedroom. Yeah. But, but I, I'm, I'm still holding out a whole lot of hope that if it's, I keep, yeah, instilling it that once their brains actually get past this madness of teenage years and the crazy hormones, it'll be ingrained in them, and it's they'll... in there already somewhere.
3: But <laughs> the difference between you and I would assume your daughters. I don't know your daughters. But it sounds like they're – I'm wondering what role adversity played in your success. Because you you didn't have the kind of upbringing that you're giving your children. No. And so you're much more probably scrappy than your kids. In fact, you were
4: kind of a wild child.
3: I was.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of still a wild woman. <laughs> but I just have to tone it down.
3: <laughs> so do you think having to struggle makes you more resilient and makes you – fight more for what you want and is that an obstacle we have with our kids being successful I do
2: I definitely think that and and I try very hard despite the fact that the girls have been born into the family that they've been born into and they're by default you know reaping the benefits of their dad and my hard work and success but I do try very hard to show them that it it's not easy. When they ask me for ten dollars to I do I always say that they're so over me, but I always say, do you know how hard people have to work for $10? I said, and that's really twenty dollars that you have to earn because the tax man <laughs> takes half. You know, and every chance I get, I explain to them that through college we'll get you there. After college, you're, I'm having these, and you should have seen my eight-year-old's head spin around on her shoulders when she heard she actually had to pay rent for her room once she got to <laughs> college. She said, wait, yeah. I, I have to pay to live here? I said, eventually. if it, cause it, So I'm constantly trying to give them those life lessons, but I also know and believe 100% that living it through experience is very different than having a mum and a dad telling you these things. Because my husband's, you know, he was an immigrant into Australia. He's from Chile. And he arrived, he lived in a hostel for the first year of his life in Australia. His mum and dad cleaned toilets to make ends meet. So we both came from very sort of, let's say, humble backgrounds, Marcos more so than I. So we do try very hard to remind the girls that what they have is extraordinary and not normal.
3: Well, I'm I'm sure you are a huge inspiration to your daughters, as you are to us. So thank you so much for being here with us today.
2: Thank you for having me. I've had a great time.
3: If you want to connect more with Regan, you can go to SaintLunaSpirits.com.
4: Yes, and thanks for me, too. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Thanks, as always, to Alicia Haywood, our amazing producer. We will be with you again soon.